It was 12.20 a.m. on February 17, 1974. Two teenagers were kissing in a car when the passenger door was yanked open by an unknown man, and he pulled the girl out of the car, knocking the boy unconscious. When the boy awoke, his girlfriend and the man were gone. Four days later, her body was found. Forty-six years, five months, and three days passed before her murderer was arrested on September 21st, 2020. You do not want to miss hearing this case. It is a two-part episode, which would normally mean y'all would have to wait a whole week to hear the conclusion. But I have a challenge for y'all. If I can get to 50 five-star ratings on iTunes by the time part one is to be released on January 13th, then I will release part one and two on the same day. On top of that, anyone who leaves a written review on iTunes for my podcast will be entered to win some podcast merch. You will have a couple items to choose from. The cutoff for this giveaway will be January 13th, 2021. The items you can choose from will be posted on all my social media platforms. I would truly love your support, as the more engagement I get on iTunes, the easier it is for more people to find my podcast. So get on iTunes, rate and review my podcast, and then go check out the merch you could win on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Good luck! Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. For season two, I'll be discussing murders from the year 1970 through 1979. Today's story is of a male murderer from 1973. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to the year 1973. On October 20th, 1973, the Sydney Opera House had its grand opening, with its first concert being held on September 29th, 1973, featuring soprano Bridget Nielsen. That same year, tennis pros Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs competed against each other in a Battle of the Sexes tennis match. Female competitor King was 29 and had already won 10 Grand Slam titles and was a pioneer in women's tennis. The male competitor, Riggs, was 55 and once considered the best tennis player in the world. King defeated Riggs in three sets, while over 30,000 spectators attended this event in Houston, and an estimated 90 million people viewed the televised match worldwide, making it the most viewed tennis match in history. Another thing that happened in 1973 was a dog who scratched a man's truck and sent him into a terrifying rage. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Henry John Hiddle and Margaret Alt began their lives together on September 1st, 1946, in Fulton County, Indiana. 
They started to grow their family, but after the death of their son Jack, at just four days old, the couple decided to adopt. They adopted a baby boy who had been born on March 1, 1950, and named him Daniel Joe Hiddle. Daniel grew up in a good family, but was a troubled boy. For example, during high school, their neighbors had a dog that would not stop barking one night, so Hiddle killed the dog by beating it to death with a club. After high school, at the age of 21, he got married, but was very abusive to his wife. He once pointed a loaded shotgun at her when she refused to turn over his car keys, and then struck their one-year-old daughter in the face. On another occasion, Hiddle gave his daughter a monkey doll, but soon took it away from her and tied it over her playpen in a hangman's noose. Once, when Hiddle informed his wife he was unfaithful to her and she had the gall to be upset over the news, he beat her and brought their daughter in to witness the beating, telling her to say goodbye to her mom. Hiddle then began choking his wife. Later she said, It was with so much force she saw spots. After this attack, the two divorced, and Hiddle soon married his second wife at the age of 23. Unfortunately, she suffered the same abuse as the first wife. The day of their wedding shower, Hiddle broke a mirror and then hit her when she didn't clean up the pieces of the mirror he broke. He once shot out her tire, and when she was pregnant and passed her due date, he kicked her in the stomach. When the baby was born, Hiddle got so upset when she wouldn't stop crying that he slapped her across the face. He also failed to support them financially, instead spending his disability pension on alcohol. There was another incident where Hiddle tied his parents' dog against a tree, shot it, and left it hanging there. He then fired another shot into the side of the house, tearing a hole in it, and laughingly said he had air-conditioned the structure. All of this was building to a horrible tragedy on March 4th, 1973. 23-year-old Daniel Hiddle went to his parents' farm in Motley, Minnesota on the night of April 4th, 1973. His parents' dog jumped up against his truck, scratching it, throwing Daniel into a rage. He took out a 22 caliber rifle and shot both his parents to death. He was arrested at the scene about an hour after the shootings. He was found guilty of the murders and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. His time in the Minnesota prison was rough with his attitude. He was written up for a series of disciplinary violations, including possession of a knife, two instances of possession of contraband and drug paraphernalia, disobeying a direct order, and interfering with a shakedown, possession of marijuana, interfering with a correctional officer, disorderly conduct, possession of contraband drugs and paraphernalia, again, refusing to comply with an order while already in segregation, inciting other inmates to riot, destruction of property, 
while already in segregation. Disobeying a direct order and being verbally abusive, again while already in segregation. Arson, use of intoxants, possession of drugs and or paraphernalia, again, and fighting with another inmate. Somehow, with all of these infractions, Hiddle was granted parole in 1984 and was given permission to move to Garland, Texas. Daniel Hiddle, now 35, met his third wife, Patricia, 31, in Texas, and the two married on June 14, 1985. You can probably guess Hiddle didn't turn his life around. By 1989, he was in an ongoing feud with his drug dealer, Mary Goss, and was even arrested on August 2nd of that year after being caught breaking into her home. While he was being taken to jail, Hiddle said several times that he would get Mary Goss and take care of her. On August 15, 1989, just two weeks later, Hiddle did just that. Mary Goss was having a party that evening at her home. Hiddle was in attendance, along with Mary's sister, Tammy, Mary's daughter, Christy Condon, Rick Cook, Mary's boyfriend, and Raymond Gregg. Mary's sister, Tammy, left the party around 10.30 p.m., and Hiddle decided this to be a good time for him to leave as well. He went home and got into an argument with his wife, Patricia, stormed out of the house around 11 p.m., saying, I'm going to kill that bee, according to one of his neighbors. After hearing the argument, the same neighbor went outside and saw Hiddle with a long-barreled gun in his hand leave in his red Chevy pickup truck around 11.10 p.m. Speeding down the road, Hiddle caught the attention of a police officer and knew if he was pulled over and was found with the weapon, it would be a violation of his parole. So when Garland police officer Gerald Walker got out of his car and walked up to Hiddle's truck, Hiddle shot him in the stomach and continued on to his destination, Mary Goss's home. Once he got to Mary's house, Hiddle kicked in the door and opened fire on the people inside. He shot until he ran out of ammunition, killing 39-year-old Mary Goss, her boyfriend, 36-year-old Rick Cook, and 19-year-old Raymond Gregg. Yet Mary's four-year-old daughter was also in the home and had not been harmed. So Hiddle reloaded his gun and shot her. He then ran back to his truck, thinking he was in the clear. But unknown to him, the officer he had shot on his way to Mary's house was able to radio in his license plate number before dying, and other police officers were on his trail. The police caught up to Hiddle, close to his home, and ran him off the road. Hiddle fired at least two shots at the officers before falling to the ground with his hands beneath him. But Hiddle didn't intend to give up quite yet, so he chose to not show the police's hands. 
and was then engaged by a police dog twice before he finally accepted defeat and complied with the police orders to show his hands. Back at Mary's house, her neighbor said she heard four gunshots around 11.25 p.m. And at 11.45 p.m., Tammy Goss returned to Mary's apartment, where she found the bodies. Four-year-old Christy Condon was found gurgling in her own blood. They rushed her to the hospital, but she was pronounced brain-dead two days later. 39-year-old Gerald Walker a 17-year veteran of the police force, also passed away from his injuries. Daniel Hiddle was held at the Garland City Jail without bond for capital murder. Although arrested for all the murders, he was only to go on trial for the murder of Officer Walker in August 1990. It only took the jury an hour to find Hiddle guilty of murder, and he was sentenced to death. At the trial, Hiddle's sister, Judy Anderson, testified against her brother. She described the pain she had felt when she learned that Hiddle killed their parents on their Minnesota farm in 1973, but that she also felt some remorse, saying, This is like a funeral. He's gone, and despite everything he's done, he's part of the family. But he had to be stopped from hurting anyone else. After Hiddle's sentence, Walker's widow, Becky, stated that jurors did what they had to do, but that she also had concerns that parole laws aren't adequately protecting Americans, saying there are other Hiddles running around out there. Mrs. Walker blames Texas officials for accepting Hiddle's transfer to Texas and not keeping a closer watch on him. This is a small business plug. Please support small businesses. I want to introduce you to Serial Killer Sweets. The owner is a fellow true crime junkie and named her business after it. These treats are delicious from Rice Krispie treats made with all different types of cereal and also cookies and brownies. This is the perfect dessert to snack on while listening to your true crime podcasts. You can find out more on their website or follow them on Instagram at Serial Killer Sweets. Hiddle went through all of his appeals with no success and was to be executed in 2000, which is considered a historic year for the death penalty. The year 2000 holds the title for the most executions in one year, with 40 executions. It was previously held by the year 1997, with a record of 37. And before that, in 1862, when 38 men were executed, all on the same day. This intense execution day was the aftermath of the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862. The Dakota are a Native American tribe and First Nations band government in North America. They compose two of the three main subcultures of the Sio people and are typically divided into the Eastern Dakota and the Western Dakota. According to usdakotawar.org, for six weeks in 1862, war raged 
throughout southwestern Minnesota. The war in its aftermath changed the course of the state's history. Hunger was widespread throughout Dakota lands in Minnesota. Since crops had been poor in 1861, the Dakota had little food stored for the starving winter of 1861-62. Their reservation supported no game. An increasing settlement off the reservation meant more competition with Euro-Americans hunting for meat. Reports about government agents' corrupt treatment of the Dakota were ignored. Factionalism continued among the Dakota, as those who maintained traditional ways saw that only those who had acculturated were reaping government support. Finally, a delayed treaty payment made traders nervous and many of them cut off credit to Dakota hunters. Indian agent Thomas Galbraith refused to distribute food to the Dakota, and though Dakota farmers shared food with their relatives throughout the summer of 1862, it wasn't enough. I will try my best to pronounce the Native American names during this next section, but I wanted to apologize in advance for my failure to say them correctly. Four Dakota hunters killed five white settlers at Acton Township, Meeker County, on August 17, 1862. Later, Wamdetenka, Big Eagle, identified these young men, stating, You know how the war started, by the killing of some white people near Acton and Meeker County. I will tell you how this was done, as it was told me by all the four young men who did the killing. These young fellows all belonged to Shakopee's band, their names were Sun Gigdigan, Brown Wing, Kemadadejan, Breaking Up, Nagawati, Killing Ghost, and Paziopo, Runs Against Something When Crawling. Some Dakota seized that moment to declare war to reclaim their homelands from the whites who would not keep their promises. In the early morning hours of August 18th, they went to war. During the war, the Dakota made extensive attacks on hundreds of settlers and immigrants, which resulted in settler deaths and caused many to flee the area. This ended with soldiers capturing hundreds of Dakota men and interning their families. Of the more than 600 white people killed during the war, just over 70 were soldiers and about 50 more were armed civilians. The others were unarmed civilians mostly young men, women, and children, who were recent immigrants to Minnesota. Historian Curtis Dallin estimates that 30% of the civilians killed were children aged 10 and under. Another 40% were adults between the ages of 20 and 40. Historians only have names for 32 of the estimated 75 to 100 Dakota soldiers who died during the war. On November 5th, a military tribunal quickly tried 392 prisoners. 303 were sentenced to death, and 16 were given prison terms. President Lincoln and government lawyers then reviewed the trial transcripts of all 303 men. 
Lincoln would later explain to the U.S. Senate. Anxious to not act with so much clemency as to encourage another outbreak on one hand, nor with so much severity as to be real cruelty on the other, I ordered a careful examination of the records of the trials to be made. In view of first ordering the execution of such as had been proved guilty of violating females. When only two men were found guilty of rape, Lincoln expanded the criteria to include those who had participated in massacres of civilians rather than just battles. He then made his final decision and forwarded a list of 39 names to Sibylle. One more was taken off the list the day of the executions. On December 26, 1862, the mass hangings of 38 Dakota men were conducted in Mankata, Minnesota. It was the largest mass execution in United States history. Daniel Hiddle held the record of being the 39th execution in 2000. Following one day behind, Gary Dean Miller, 33, executed on Tuesday, December 5th, and just one day before the final execution of the year, Claude Howard Jones, 60, executed Thursday, December 6th, bringing the execution total to 40. The year 2000 still holds that title today. From an article in the El Paso Times dated December 9, 2000, the author wrote, It was a watershed year, with emotions running high as a mentally ill inmate, Larry Robson, was executed. As a second woman, Billy Lou Beats joined the injected list, and as hundreds and hundreds of media and demonstrators wilted in the Texas heat on a June day when Gary Graham's claims of innocence an unfair trial ended with his battle with guards who fastened him to the death chamber gurney in a lengthy haragu about black power. Daniel Joe Hiddle was executed Wednesday, December 6, 2000, at the age of 50. He refused to talk to reporters in the weeks leading up to his death, and his last statement was only the name of the religious guru he followed, Sandag. Ibe Singh, an Indian religious teacher who advocated love and nonviolence. After speaking his name, Hiddle then nodded, smiled, and winked at his spiritual advisor, the only person he selected to watch him die, and just nine minutes later, he was dead. Becky Walker, the slain officer's widow, was one of five witnesses for the officer at the execution. Earlier that week, she told the Dallas Morning News she would witness the execution in memory of her husband, saying, I owe this to him. I can't do anything less for my husband, but see this through. I'm seeing this through for Gerald. It's not going to help me. Mrs. Walker, at the time of the execution, was still struggling, as she had actually heard her husband's last words on the police scanner the night of the shooting. 
she rarely leaves her home. She gave up her job as a city court supervisor because of the stress of interacting with people and ended up working for the court from her home. I want to say a huge thank you to Murderpedia, Newspapers.com, Newsmax, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Please join me next week when I will discuss a female murderer from 1974. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review my podcast, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at crimesofadecadepod and on Twitter at crimesofadecade. Thank you.